This is the Gathering Ottawa's Message Podcast, and we've got another great message for you. For information about us, check out thegatheringottawa.com. To get connected, email info at thegatheringottawa.com. And just know that at The Gathering, we exist to connect people to the love of Jesus. So let's get right to it. Well, this morning, we are wrapping up our series that we've been calling God Has a Name, our summer series. It's based actually on this book. I've mentioned it, I think, every week by the same title, same name, God Has a Name. would encourage you, if you want to go a little bit deeper into some of the ideas and content that we've been exploring in this series, to give it um, a read, put it on your summer reading list, because it's an excellent resource, a great book. But in this series, what we're doing is we're asking the question, what is God like, really? Who is he? Um, is he a he? Is he a she, an it, a spirit in the sky? What or who is God, really? And to answer that question, what we're doing is we're going to the source. We're going to God's word and to what it is that he said himself about himself. And in Exodus 34, as Moses asks God to reveal himself to him, he asks God, essentially, who are you? He says, show me your glory. It's his way of saying, show me who you really are. God describes himself to Moses. The only place in scripture where we see God himself describing his nature to anybody else. Exodus 34, verses 6 through to 7, the most quoted passage of scripture in scripture, most quoted passage in the Bible, by the Bible. Let me read it for us. This has been the passage that we've been working through week in and week out in this series. I'll start in verse 5. Then the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him, and he called out his own name, Yahweh. The Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out, Yahweh, the Lord. Hi. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, you can go in and around there. I love the informality of our church, especially when we're outdoors. Yahweh, the Lord, God called out. We talked about that in week one, Yahweh being God's name. God's name is not actually God. It's Yahweh which essentially means I am who I am, or I will be who I will always be. God is saying, Yahweh is saying here and describing himself in this way, that if I'm compassionate and full of mercy, then I'm compassionate and full of mercy all the time. If I'm filled with unfailing love and forgiveness, kindness, then I am that way all all the time. You can trust that my character will never change. I am who I am, and I will be who I am all the time. Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy, that was week two. Compassion being a feeling word, that God feels certain things towards us, towards his creation. And mercy being an action word, that not only does he feel things, but he actually acts on his feelings. He rescues us in our time of need. I'm slow to anger, he says. Slow to anger. He doesn't fly off the handle like we do, but he can still get angry. Right? We talked about how you can make God mad. You just have to try really hard at it. It's hard to make God angry. And I'm filled with unfailing love, and faithfulness. This was last week. We talked about God's unfailing love and faithfulness, his covenant love towards you and towards me as we have established so perfectly. God established for us in the person of Jesus, the new covenant that was established through his blood. And now here's what we're going to get into this morning, all of verse 7. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations, he says. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but I do not excuse the guilty. 
I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations. Yikes! What do we do with this passage? Like, honestly, as I was working through my summer preaching schedule, and in the summer, kind of look for something a little bit lighter and a little bit more simple, something like a psalm to preach or, you know, something kind of relatively easy to get through. I thought, oh, this will be a nice summer series until I saw that part. And I was like, that's a complicated, loaded statement there, verse 7. There's some difficult theological uh, truths in there to unpack, right? What's the deal here with God essentially saying that he's going to punish children for their parents' sin and grandparents' sin? What in the world is that all about? So we're going to talk about here this morning. But if we're going to make sense out of that line, we have to start by understanding the lines leading up to that line. We're at the beginning of verse 7. God says this first about himself, right? He says, I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. We talked a little bit about unfailing love last week. As for emphasis, God's unfailing love here, or his has said, as we talked about last week in Hebrew, that's the Hebrew word, it's mentioned twice in this passage in Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7. It's the only attribute of God's, only characteristic of God's that is mentioned twice. As for emphasis, God is saying, this is really, really, really important for you to understand. This is really true about me. Last week, we talked about how in verse 6, he talked about how he's filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. And then in the very next line, he says, I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations, making this one of the truest things about God, that he is filled with unfailing love. Now, this word here, lavish, it means to protect or to guard. He's saying, I lavish unfailing love, like I I protect my people with my love. This is language that we see used often in the Psalms as well. For example, in Psalm 40, verse 11, David writes this. He says, Lord, don't hold back your tender mercies from me. Let your unfailing love and faithfulness always protect me. Which speaks to this idea that God, in his unfailing love and faithfulness, that he's our protector and our defender, guarding us from evil as a good father, right, protects their kids from harm. But notice here in Exodus 34 that God, he's not just our protector, but he lavishes his unfailing love, he says, to a thousand generations. Meaning that God's love and faithfulness and his protection, it's not just for us, but it's for everybody with his love extending to a thousand generations, which is a really important phrase, and we're going to circle back to that in a little bit. Second phrase here in verse 7 is this. God says, I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin. This word forgive meaning to lift up or to carry or to take away, which as Christians, when we hear that, should remind us, I think, of Jesus, right? And what it is that Jesus did for us on the cross. John the Baptist called Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's the one who was lifted up on the cross and carried our sin for us on behalf in order to take away our sins from us so that we could be forgiven. Right here in Exodus 34, verse 7, there's already some foreshadowing 
towards the cross. God knows the cross is in his future, that he's going to pay the highest price so that we could be forgiven of our sins. But God, God's always been a forgiving God, even before the cross. It's just who he is. It's in his nature. Um, and there's three things in particular that God mentions here in Exodus 34 that he forgives. Three things, right? First thing he says is iniquity or wickedness in some other translations. Rebellion is the second thing. And then sin. The three most common words in the Hebrew Bible that describes the extent of human depravity. Iniquity, rebellion, and sin. Iniquity or wickedness is a catch-all kind of junk drawer term or word to describe any and all bad behavior, right? Anything from cheating on your taxes to murder. <laughs> Pretty broad range there. Any and all forms of bad behavior. Rebellion in the Hebrew speaks to the breaking of the law, God's law in particular. It's when you know exactly what God commands, but we say, no, I don't want to do that. I'm going to go my own way instead. And then sin here is to miss the mark. That's literally what this word means, to miss the mark. It's an archery term used for missing the bullseye, and it speaks to any time in any way that we mess up and miss the mark of God's ideal for our lives. This is what God forgives us of, basically everything. <laughs> but notice here in the text, it's not just that God forgives us, though he does, but it's that he is forgiving. You see that? Speaking here to his character and his nature, that being forgiving is just hardwired into God's DNA. It's just who he is. He is a forgiving God. Old Testament scholar Douglas K. Stewart put it like this in his commentary on Exodus 34. He said, God does not reluctantly forgive sins, but he does so eagerly as a manifestation of his character. I love that. He does so eagerly as a manifestation of his character. It's like God wakes up in the morning thinking, like, who can I forgive today? I can't wait to forgive people. It's just part of who he is. It's, it's how he's wired. God is a forgiving God. But here now, as we continue on through verse 7 of Exodus, Exodus 34, here now is where things start to get a little bit spicy, <laughs> if you will. There's another side to God's forgiveness here, and a side that I think is a little bit harder for us to understand. As God says next in verse 7, he says, I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but then he says this, but I do not excuse the guilty. I do not excuse the guilty. I'm, I'm a forgiving God, but I do not excuse the forgiving. The idea here being that while God is forgiving in nature, he's also just. And he's not about to let the guilty just go off the hook. And God's justice, it's hard to understand, but God's justice is actually a good thing, believe it or not. As ultimately, God's vision for the world is a world without sin and without evil. That's God's desire. That's his heart. That's his vision for the world. No sin, no evil, no sickness, no disease disease, no injustice, none of it. Perfection. But see, God's, God's justice is not like ours, right? Our justice is often 
coming from a place you know, of a desire for payback or revenge and things like this. That's not God's judgment or God's justice, rather. God's justice comes from a place of wanting to heal the world and restore the world and renew the world. It's why when we repent and turn from our sin, God responds to us with mercy, forgiveness, and healing. But when we don't, when we refuse to acknowledge our sin, when we refuse to repent and turn away from our sin, eventually God will hand us over to the consequences of it. That's his justice, handing us over to it. But imagine this vision that God has for the world. Imagine a world with no sin and no evil. It's God's vision for the world, right? No human trafficking, no, no warmongering dictators driving their countries into the ground, no genocide, no racism, no war, no violence, no abuse, no misogyny or exploitation of women and children, no floods in Nova Scotia or wildfires across the country, no disease or divorce or depression, no evil or the effects of evil at all, no sin or the effects of sin in our world at all. Like how many of you would love to live in a world like that? Like all of us would desire to live in a world like that, wouldn't we? And if we're followers of Jesus, the, the good news of Jesus is that one day we will. When Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom here on earth, there will be no more mourning, no more sickness, no more pain, no more tears. Because the old order of things, the old reality of our world will have passed away. He will put an end to sin and to evil once and for all. Where in his judge, ju uh, justice, he will judge it and do away with it permanently. See, God's, God's justice is a good thing. It's a hard thing, but it's a good thing, as ultimately it's about moving our world towards life without sin and without evil. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but I do not excuse the guilty, God says. And now here's where things get really spicy in verse 7. God says this. He says, I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. Or some other translations put it, I punish the children and their children for the sins of the parents. Like what in the world is going on here? This isn't even the first time God has said this. He also said this in Exodus 20 when he gave the Ten Commandments. So this is also important because he's saying it twice. So what is this all about? Well, for starters, let me say this, this line, it can't mean what it appears to mean in English. With God, you know, literally punishing kids for their parents' and grandparents' sin, where, you know, if your grandpa stole a chocolate bar from the corner store in 1935, God's going to go all John Wick on you. He's just going to take out his fury on you for that thing that your grandparents did. It can't mean, and it doesn't mean that. And the reason for that, at least part of the reason for that, is because sometime later, Moses himself said that children shouldn't be punished for their parents' sins, as they were sorting out how capital punishment would work in ancient Israel, where in Deuteronomy 24, verse 16, Moses said this. This was the Mosaic law. Parents must not be put to death for the sins of their children. 
nor children for the sins of their parents. Those deserving to die must be put to death for their own crimes. And so back in Exodus 34, this line about God punishing their kids and their grandkids and so on, uh, for their sins, it can't mean what it sounds like it means. As Moses clearly here lived with an understanding that individuals were responsible for their crimes and for their sin, not their families. Jesus actually picked up on this as well in John 9. Some of you will know the story where one day Jesus and his disciples are out walking and there's a man who had been born blind and the disciples asked Jesus, who sinned, him or his parents? And Jesus said, neither of them sinned. That's not how this works, right? This happened so that God could be glorified through his life, and then he went on to heal him. Jesus lived with an understanding that 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 person, their family's sin had nothing to do with their illness or sickness. So it doesn't mean that if your grandpa sinned or if your grandpa was a bad person, grandma was a bad person, that you're screwed, God's going to come after you. It doesn't mean that. So what does it then mean? This line, it means at least three things. First, it means that the parent's sin, our sin, if you're a parent, has consequences for the children's future. This is perhaps the most obvious meaning, but it's true, right? Like if mom and dad, for example, are drug dealers and get arrested and get put into jail, it's the children who will suffer the most, finding themselves in the foster system and having to live life without loving and caring parents. Or if mom and dad are alcoholics, or if they're abusive or negligent or harsh towards their children. It, it's the children, and maybe even the children's children, who end up paying the price for their sin because that, that kind of dysfunction gets passed down, gets learned from the parent. It gets passed down from generation to generation. Or maybe a little bit closer to home, if mom and dad get a divorce, right? If dad has an affair, mom just quits on the marriage, walks out, who pays the price? Well, mom and dad do, but so do the kids, right? Life gets significantly more difficult for the children. When parents sin, the kids pay the price to some extent. That is just true. That's the first layer of meaning here to this statement. The second layer of meaning to this statement is that the reality of sin, the reality is that sin can sometimes be passed down from generation to generation. As one generation's sin becomes the next generation's sin, and on and on we go. It can happen. Sin can be passed down. Think of alcoholism or addiction as an example. There are actually studies out there that show that a person's genetic makeup, their genes, the DNA that is passed down to them from their parents, these genes can be responsible for up to half of the associated risk for alcoholism in a person meaning that some people are just born with a predisposition towards addiction simply because of their parents' behavior and decision, because of their parents' sin. Or think of other dysfunctions that may exist in some of our family trees, right? Whether it's conflict avoidance or people-pleasing or fear and anxiety or self-righteousness and pride or hoarding and greed and stinginess or even sexual sin and affairs and things like these. If we let them, these things can all be passed down from one generation to the next because we're shaped by our parents who were shaped by their parents, and down the line we can go. 
Like some of us just feel like we can't escape our last name, no matter how hard we try. Right? The apple doesn't fall too far from the tree, we say. Now, to be clear, when we talk about this, this idea is it's identified as generational sin. This is language people use here to describe this, generational sin. We talk about generational sin. What we're not talking about here, just want to be really clear about this, is some sort of weird, overly spiritualized belief that we are cursed or something because of something in your family tree, right? Like, because maybe grandpa was a Freemason, was involved in some weird spiritual activity, or because great-grandma was involved in witchcraft or something, some weird spiritual practices, or because, in my case, your biological father date-raped your biological mother, and that's how you were conceived. That's literally my story. Just because of things that have happened in your family tree, bad, terrible, evil, sinful things, just because that has happened, it does not mean that you now need to pray certain prayers to break those curses over your life. That's not how this works. Some well-meaning Christians actually believe this, that because of great-grandma's sin, you are now cursed, and you need to figure out what that is so that you can break those curses. That's not what we're talking about here. There's really no, as, as far as I'm concerned, no biblical basis for that kind of thinking or theology, and it's most certainly not in line with the gospel, that in Christ we are now new creations. The old is gone. First Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5 tells us this, right? The old is gone. The new has come. In Christ, he broke the curse on the cross in rising from the tomb. There's no magical incantation you need to pray or thing you need to do to break off the curse, because Christ has already accomplished that for you. So we're not talking about that. just want to be really clear. But what we are talking about this morning, and what I think God was talking about in Exodus 34, is the reality that we are shaped, for better or for worse, by our families of origin. And that, while it's a bit of a mystery in terms of how all that happens, how it all plays out, if we're not careful... We'll fall over like that sign over there. Our life will be destroyed. No, if we're not careful, right, our undealt with sin and dysfunction, the, the patterns within our family, those things can be passed down from generation to generation. As our kids learn from us, as we learn from our parents, as they learn from their parents, and we bring the good, the bad, the ugly along with us. Which I don't know about you as we talk about this. It's just sobering stuff. To think that my kids are learning, yes, hopefully some good things for me, but also some pretty dysfunctional things and sinful things as well. Third and final meaning of this line in Exodus 34, it's probably the most difficult meaning of them all. And that meaning is this, is that because God is just, he will continue to discipline and punish every generation after us until our sin is completely gone. It's probably the most accurate meaning of that statement, meaning that as we continue to live into our parents and our grandparents' sin and dysfunction, whether that's things like the sin of racism or homophobia or sexism and misogyny or pride and self-righteousness or lust and sexual sin, whatever that dysfunction, that sin may be, as we continue to live into our parents and grandparents sin, God will continue to discipline or even to, in a sense, punish us 
as that sin persists in our lives. That punishment most often being, by the way, some sort of handing us over to it. In fact, that language in Hebrew that's used here, where it says that he will lay the sins at the, the children or he'll punish them, it actually speaks to the idea of consequence. I'll lay the consequences at their feet. God will punish us in the sense that he hands us over to our sin, where sin itself becomes its own punishment. Talked about that a few weeks ago. God basically just says, if that's what you really want, you can have it, but you got to have all of it consequences and all. Which I get as we talk about God punishing or disciplining his kids is an uncomfortable and unnerving reality for us to consider. But remember, if God's ultimate vision for the world is to be free from sin and evil, then we shouldn't really be surprised by God's commitment to eradicating sin and evil from our world by all means necessary. But here now is where this line in Exodus 34, 7 gets fun. The last line here about God punishing kids. They are not, I lay the sins of the parents of the kids and grandkids, but they are this. These are the last words, right? He says, in the third and fourth generations, meaning it goes on for three, four generations. This is important. That's how he ends his whole disclosure statement. Now, why does this matter? Well, it matters because it's not the first time in this passage where God uses the word generations, right? Remember earlier in verse 7, he says, I lavish what? Unfailing love to a thousand generations. But here he ends his statement with, the entire family is affected by sin, even children to the third and the fourth generations. Do you see the contrast here? God is saying that while the entire family is affected by sin, even to the third and the fourth generation, he also says, I lavish unfailing love and faithfulness to a thousand generations. Now, I'm not good at math, but what's bigger? A thousand generations or three or four? I think you get the idea here, right? God is saying my unfailing love, my forgiveness, my mercy is so much greater than my justice and my judgment. That's what he's saying. He's saying that while he is just, he's also and mostly forgiving. And that when his justice and mercy bump up against each other, it's his mercy that wins, wins out every single time. God will always err on the side of mercy and forgiveness and compassion. If it were a scale, if you think of a scale, his his, uh, his mercy is down here and his justice because his mercy is just so much more weighty than his justice. It's just who he is. A good example of this comes from a story we find from the life of Moses in Numbers 14. We won't look at it, but I'll summarize it for you, where in short, God's people, the nation of Israel, they're at the edge of the promised land after having traveled to get there for a year. But there's a problem. And that is that as they peer over into that land, they realize that this land is filled with enemies, with giants and barbaric warriors known as uh, Amalekites, men who could easily destroy them. They had no chance of being victorious over these people. So they travel all this way. This land that's been promised them is there, but then they're looking in and they're like, man, like this isn't going to happen. God promised this land to us, but there's just no way. He's not going to come through for us. They're disappointed. 
They're discouraged. They're frustrated. They're tired. They're hungry. And so what did they do? Well, they rebelled. The people rebelled. They refused to cross the Jordan River, and they began to complain against Moses and his brother Aaron, the leaders, saying, we want different leaders, and even going so far as complaining against God himself, saying things like, why did God call us here? Why did he lead us here? Just to die? As in their sinful and stubborn hearts, they refused to trust in God, which, by the way, is what sin is at the end of the day. It's to refuse to trust in God, to place our faith or trust in something else to save us as opposed to God. It's what they did. They refused to trust that God would provide for them, take care of them, that he would follow through on his promises to them. And so how did God feel about the Israelites' response to all this? In short, not great. (laughs) Not very good. Numbers 14, verses 11 and 12 says this. We see God's response. The Lord said to Moses, How long will these people treat me with contempt? Will they never believe me? Even after all the miraculous signs I've done among them, I will disown them and destroy them with a plague. And I will make you into a greater nation and mightier than they are. Now, there's lots of theories around what God's doing here. Is God testing Moses to see how he'll respond? Is God actually considering destroying the nation of Israel? We don't know. But what we do know is God's not happy with the nation of Israel. And so how does Moses respond? It's really interesting. Moses responds to God here by appealing to God's character, quoting Exodus 34 back to him. Remember, we've looked each week at a different passage in the Bible that refers back to Exodus 34, most quoted passage in the Bible by the Bible. Moses goes back to Exodus 34 here. He says this, Please, Lord, prove that your power is as great as you have claimed. For you have said the the Lord is slow to anger and filled with unfailing love, forgiving every kind of sin and rebellion. We've heard that a few times, Exodus 34 language. But then he says this, but he does not excuse the guilty. He lays the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations. In keeping with your magnificent, unfailing love, please pardon the sins of this people, just as you have forgiven them ever since they left Egypt. Now, what's Moses doing here? Well, he's asking God, begging God, bargaining with God to be true to his character. Saying, remember, this is who you are. Extend your mercy and forgiveness and unfailing love to the nation of Israel as opposed to your justice. I know you said you'd punish them, but extend your unfailing love and forgiveness instead. It's appealing to his character. I love that. that Moses could have that kind of conversation with God. He's that close with him that he could like, negotiate with God. Well, in response, look at how God responds to Moses' plea, his intercession on behalf of the nation of Israel. As God immediately says in response to Moses, he says, I will pardon them as you have requested. He's like, okay, you're going back to my character. You're reminding me of who I am. Yep, I'll do it. I'm going to forgive them as you have requested. But then as you read on, it's important to notice, God then goes on to also list some consequences to their sin as well. Namely, that this generation would not be the ones to enter the promised land, but that a future one would instead. He's like, I'll forgive them. But there's going to be consequences still to their actions, to their sin. This is Numbers 14, where we see God's mercy and eagerness to forgive on full display, while also 
punishing or disciplining sin for what it was. John Mark Comer, in the book, he summarizes this story and really the entire uh, verse uh, of Exodus 34, Exodus 34, verse 7, like this. He says, Yahweh is forgiving, but sin is not. Yahweh is forgiving, but sin is not. Yahweh, who he's full of mercy, full of unfailing love and forgiveness. He's quick to forgive, eager to forgive. That's who he is. But sin, on the other hand, it is unforgiving and merciless and cruel. We're just like Israel, right? If we go too far down a certain path, a sinful path, we can find ourselves forgiven by God, yes, but lost in the desert for years because there are consequences to our sin. For example, a terrible example, but one that I think is helpful nonetheless. Imagine if I had an affair on my wife, Kim, but then repented, broke it off, and came crawling back to my family and to the church and my friends and begged for forgiveness. There's no doubt that God would forgive me, right? No doubt he's filled with unfailing love and forgiveness towards us. I'd hope that others would eventually forgive me as well. But even still, even if some did forgive me, and even though God would forgive me, I would still spend the rest of my life dealing with the fallout from my sin. Right? Kim would be absolutely devastated and would probably never trust me again, even if we were to stay married. Probably the marriage would end in divorce. Relationship with my kids would be damaged, if not destroyed. I'd immediately lose my job and probably never find another pastoral job because I don't have marketable skills outside of being a pastor. Uh, my life would be forever changed for the worse. Forgiven by God, but dealing with the consequences of my sin probably for the rest of my life, just like Israel in the desert. In fact, one exercise I remember years ago hearing someone challenge me with, if ever you're struggling with sin or you're being tempted with something, make a pros and cons list, <laughs> right? What's, what's the good here that could come from this and what's the bad? And when the bad greatly outweighs the good, it's probably not a good idea. It can kind of help keep us in check with sin. But here's the important truth that I want us to consider this morning and that I think God wants us to consider as he told us who he is in Exodus 34. It's that while God is full of unfailing love and faithfulness, he's eager to forgive us, sin never forgives. Sin never forgives. And because of that, we need to take sin way more seriously than we do. We do. Because you know who takes sin super seriously? God does, right? God takes sin very seriously. In fact, he took sin so seriously that he became flesh in the person of Jesus, going to the cross where justice and mercy would meet in order to deal with our sin problem once and for all. If only we'd repent of our sin, come before God and say, hey, there are things in my life that I know are not the way that they should be. I can't stop looking at 
certain things on the internet. I can't stop struggling with lust. I can't stop gossiping. I can't stop judging others. I can't stop being tempted in these ways. I can't stop stealing. I can't stop whatever the thing is in our life to come before him and say, I don't want to live this way. Would you empower me by your spirit to live a different kind of way? Would you break the pattern? I don't know where it came from. If it's something I learned from my parents or from my siblings, or if it's just something that I took upon myself, but God, would you break this pattern? Would you break the power of this sin over my life? Because God made a way for us to experience freedom from sin by going to the cross on our behalf. So magical incantation you need to pray or Weird voodoo you need to do to look into your family tree or past to be able to name everything. Just go to Jesus directly. Go through Jesus to our Father who longs to forgive us, is eager to forgive. If only we would repent. And not just out of a place of guilt, like I feel bad, but out of godly sorrow, like I don't want to keep doing this to you. I want to live differently. This closing line in Exodus 34, verse 7. I think it's a line filled with both hope and a warning, isn't it? The warning being being that God will deal with the sin in our lives one way or the other. You know, we might not take sin all that seriously, but he does. Even to the point of death, quite literally for him. For us, man, we don't, don't wait until we're in the desert for 40 years to deal with our sin. Don't wait until the con- we've been handed over to the consequences of it, but repent of it. Confess it to a brother or a sister in Christ. Deal with it. Knowing that there is mercy. And gra- That's the warning, I think, in Exodus 34, verse 7, is that God will deal with the sin in our lives one way or the other. But the hope here is that because of Jesus, we actually can break free from sin even sin that runs back generations. And what was true for our parents doesn't have to be true for us. We don't have to repeat sinful, dysfunctional patterns from our family tree, but can be set free in Christ as we name and repent from our sin, whatever that sin may be. In Christ, we can actually break free from sin. That's what in Exodus 34 verse 7, God was already foreshadowing that there's going to be a way where you can experience freedom from the impact of sin, and your kids can too, and your grandkids. You can break dysfunctional, sinful patterns. So as we close, what I want to do is I want to read um, Psalm 103 over you, and I want to invite you as we do that to, uh, to just pray and ask God to maybe speak to you about Maybe there's a sin thing in your life that he's trying to convict you of. Maybe it's a character flaw. Maybe it's a decision that you're, you've made or are considering making that's not in line with his character. Um, maybe it's, you know, iniquity, rebellion, sin kind of fits into one of those categories in your story and in your life. I want to invite you just to ask God to speak to you about that as we look at Psalm 103, verses 7 through to 18. And As I read this, I actually want to invite you just to close your eyes and prayerfully let these words kind of be spoken over you as a prayer, as before God, you let God minister to you and speak to you about your own story and your own life. Psalm 103, verse 7 says this, He, God, revealed his character to Moses and his deeds to the people of Israel. 
The Lord is compassionate and merciful, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. He will not constantly accuse us, nor remain angry forever. He does not punish us for all of our sins. He, de- he does not deal harshly with us as we deserve. For his unfailing love towards those who fear him is as great as the height of the heavens above the earth. He has removed our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. The Lord is like a father to his children, tender and compassionate to those who fear him. For he knows how weak we are. He remembers that we are only dust. Our days on earth are like grass, like wildflowers we bloom and die. The wind blows and we are gone, as though we had never been before. But the love of the Lord remains forever with those who fear him. His salvation extends to the children's children of those who are faithful to his covenant, of those who obey his commands. Let me pray. Well, God, we thank you for this sobering challenge this morning, insight into your character that you are the God of justice and the God of mercy. Eager to forgive, but you also take sin very seriously. We thank you that this comes from a beautiful place of wanting to see this world that we live in, our lives. You want to see us set free from the reality, the power of sin and evil. That you discipline those that you love, as we read in Hebrews 12. It's not coming from a place of rage and anger and fury, but out of a place of uh, a desire to purify us, to make us more like Jesus. We confess, God, that there are many ways that we um, have looked to other things other than you to fulfill us. But we're like Israel. We, we have not trusted you. We have not loved you. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We have not lived in line with your desire for us, your calling on us. And we repent of those things. And I pray that you'd speak to each of us about what specifically that looks like. It's easy to be generic, but God, would you convict us of certain things, attitudes, behaviors, uh, perspectives that we have that are not in line with who you are, that you'd invite us to repent of for our sake, but also for parents, for our kids' sake. We don't want to pass on dysfunction and sin to our kids. We want to pass on instead salvation and life in you to our kids instead. Teach us how. Show us how we pray. Thank you, Jesus, that you made a way. We can't do this on our own. This is well beyond our our capacity. We need you. We needed a Savior, and you came for us. Our hope is in you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. for tuning in. We're back next week with another great message. Don't forget to check out our website, thegatheringottawa.com, and tune in next week to The Gathering Ottawa's Message Podcast.